as the Count leaned over me and his hands touched me, I could not repress a shudder. It may have been that his breath was rank, but a horrible feeling of nausea came over me, which, do what I would, I could not conceal. The Count, evidently noticing it, drew back, and with a grim sort of smile, which showed, more than he had yet done, his protuberant teeth, sat himself down again on his own side of the fireplace. We were both silent for a while, and, as I looked towards the window, I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn. There seemed a strange stillness over everything, but as I listened, I heard as if from down in the valley the howling of many wolves. The Count's eyes gleamed, and he said, Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make. Seeing, I suppose, some expression in my face strange to him, he added, Ah, sir, you dwellers in the city cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. Dracula is one of the most successful novels of all time. Translated into almost every language in the world, and with over 1,000 movies inspired by it, it lives on 100 years after it was written. But what makes it so great? Well, I think Dracula hits a kind of universal chord. Senator David Norris, a distant relative of the writer Bram Stoker, is the archetypal creepy bedtime story. It's classic terror fiction. It also has all kinds of concealed themes about human sexuality and so on, biting the neck of these virgins and all the rest of it. And it's tremendously atmospheric, the way it builds up this isolated castle in a foreign country. And it's become part of the universal mythology. Bram Stoker lived in Dublin for the first 32 years of his life. Dennis McIntyre from the Stoker Dracula Association argues the novel's roots are in the author's childhood growing up in Clontarf, County Dublin. Bram Stoker had a very, very, to put it mildly, a very strange childhood. Bram didn't walk until he was seven years old, and the Pierce spent most of his time in his room, in the, in the dark. He seemed to have liked the dark all the time. And that was the time his mother had a great influence on him, because she told him many and many of these stories. Like the one about the cholera epidemic in Sligo. The habit was when a new batch arrived for whom there were no beds, to take those who were stupefied from opium and near his death, and remove them to make room for the new arrivals. Many were said to be buried alive. One man brought his wife to the hospital on his back, and she being in great agony, he tied a red neck handkerchief tightly around her waist to try and relieve the pain. When he came again to the hospital in the evening, he heard that she was dead and lying in the dead house. He sought her body to give it more decent burial than could be given there. The custom was to dig a large trench put in 40 or 50 corpses without coffins, throw lime on them and cover the grave. He saw the corner of his red handkerchief under several bodies which he removed, found his wife and saw there was still life in her. He carried her home and she recovered and lived many years. She told him that she saw people digging pits, deep pits or graves if you like, and pushing people who were still alive, not with their hands, they wouldn't even touch the dying, pushed them with wooden poles and literally buried them alive in these pits. Bram Stoker's birth date is also significant. He was born in 1847 at the height of the Great Famine. His mother may very well have told him stories about the famine 
and the mass graves and corpses left on the side of the road and the walking dead because during the worst periods of the famine, which she would have experienced, she would have seen it at its worst and she would have seen emaciated, ghastly figures walking around in the trance of extreme hunger. In Bram's time, and indeed you could say to this day, there was and has been and probably always will be a stigma about suicide. Now the stigma was at that time that if you committed suicide, it was alleged you became a vampire unless you were given the stake through the heart treatment. A stake was literally hammered through your heart before you were buried. Also, you were not allowed to be buried in consecrated ground. That was a church rule. You were buried in what was known as a suicide plot. Where Bram lived in Clontarf, just beside it is an area known as Ballybah. Now there was one of these suicide plots there and again we know that Bram played for, for hours on end in that suicide plot. As I sat, I heard a sound in the courtyard without, the agonized cry of a woman. I rushed to the window and throwing it up peered between the bars. There, indeed, was a woman with disheveled hair, holding her hands over her heart as one distressed with running. She was leaning against the corner of the gateway. When she saw my face at the window, she threw herself forward and shouted in a voice laden with menace, Monster, give me my child. My name is Peter Condell, I'm the tour guide at St. Michael's here, and I'll be taking you down to see the mummies. The steps are a bit uneven, be careful of the fourth one. It's big. Now, here we are with the mummies. Down here in the crypt, the temperature is constant. It's very dry because the crypt is constructed of limestone, which absorbs humidity. And the land beneath the building releases methane gas into the atmosphere. And the three things together, temperature, dryness and gas, create the conditions to preserve. The one on the right as you're looking is female, but she's the most damaged. So she's... Underneath St. Mickens here are burial vaults. Male, and it is known that Bram Stoker's male, mother's family had a burial vault here. And the young Bram Stoker used to visit these vaults as a child. And the one at the back, the Crusader. He's buried with his legs crossed, which apparently is traditional amongst the Crusades, although in his case, he's crossed at the thigh bones and his lower legs broken and hooshed up underneath him, again because he's too tall. The first thing you notice about these mummies is that they're all in coffins. If they can be perfectly preserved through hundreds of years of time, is it not possible there could still be life in them? That they are just sleeping? Sleeping in coffins? Which is exactly how Dracula sleeps in Stoker's book. There, in one of the great boxes, of which there were fifty in all, on a pile of newly dug earth, lay the Count. He was either dead or asleep. I could not say which, for eyes were open and stony, but without the glassiness of death, and the cheeks had the warmth of life through all their pallor. The lips were as red as ever. But there was no sign of movement, no pulse, no breath, no beating of the heart. I bent over him and tried to find any sign of life, but in vain. He could not have lain there long, for the earthy smell would have passed away in a few hours. By the side of the box was its cover, pierced with holes here and there. I thought he might have the keys on him, but when I went to search I saw the dead eyes, 
and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate, though unconscious of me or my presence, that I fled from the place. The other thing is, of course, that the Stokers were a very well-known Dublin medical family. They were a kind of medical clan. At one point in the 19th century, there were at least 12 doctors from the Stoker family with the Stoker surname operating, so to speak, in the Dublin area. One of them invented the first trepanning operation, which meant sawing through the bone of the skull, lifting it out and fiddling around with the brain. Almost Frankenstein rather than Dracula, so there would have been this ghoulish medical knowledge. While Dracula may well be influenced by Stoker's Irish upbringing, is the book itself a statement of the Ireland of the time? This book, Dracula, is basically an Irish book. It's called Dracula. Now, I say that comes from the Irish word Drach which means bad blood. The blood goes back to famine times. Family survived on the, the blood of the milch cow and all this kind of thing. So blood sucking, all that kind of thing is very, very Irish. And the most hated person in the country at the time was the landlord. And there was one in every village. We say, metaphorically speaking, Dracula could be that landlord up in the castle sucking the blood of the peasants. Oh, I think that's all balls. I think it represents death. It represents the fundamental fear that the human has of extinction and the desire in whatever circumstances to overcome it. And even if it means becoming undead, and it's the struggle between the Christian virtues and this kind of pagan wish for life at any price. I don't think there's anything really much to do with landlords. Dracula is now recognised as the second biggest selling book of all time. Only the Bible has outsold it. It has lived through the ages, and no doubt Dracula will continue to scare and horrify children and adults alike for years to come. <laughs>